Hello, and welcome to episode 27 of the Forensic Files. I'm Dr. N. Today I want to talk about James Blackman. He was released around this time last year after spending over 30 years in prison for a crime he did not commit. This is his story. In 1979, Raleigh, North Carolina, St. Augustine's College student Helena Payton was murdered. She was stabbed to death in the bathroom of her dorm. Witnesses saw a man leaving the building and quickly produced a composite sketch of their suspect. They also found evidence including bloody clothing in the woods near the dorm. Police were not successful in finding a concrete suspect early on in the case. Fast forward a few years, and James Blackman became a person of interest in 1983 when investigators were informed he was allegedly admitting guilt in the murder of Helena Payton. He was, at the time, a patient at Dorothea Dix Hospital. Part of the investigation included examining James's psychiatric history. Later in 1983, when James was released from the hospital, police interviewed him about the claims he had made related to the case. Police believed, based on the composite sketch, that he was their best suspect. They interviewed him a handful of times, even having James take them to the site of the bloody clothing in the woods and to the bathroom stall where the murder took place. Despite his admission of guilt, and ability to lead detectives to key places associated with the case, the only hard evidence linking James to the crime was his own confession. There is also evidence that James may not have been in the state at the time of the murder, saying there's a lot of evidence that he was very likely in New York at the time and not North Carolina. Along with this, a witness to the crime couldn't identify him in a lineup in 1979. There was also other evidence in the case that James didn't fit either, a set of fingerprints that wasn't a match. James's statements, though they include admissions of guilt, also include a lot of delusional statements. James had a long psychiatric history with stays in and out of facilities. He had been diagnosed with schizoaffective disorder, which is a combination of both schizophrenic symptoms, which include hallucinations or delusions, and mood disorder symptoms, which include depression or mania. He didn't have a great grasp on reality, and he would claim that he could cause earthquakes, possessed telepathic powers, reported seeing UFOs, and compared himself to Dracula. As I've talked about in past episodes related to false confessions and competency, those who have severe mental illness and low intelligence are much more easily coerced and are more likely to falsely confess to crimes. James had an IQ that was measured at 69, and he did not appear in a clear state of mind to stand trial. He certainly does not meet the standards of competency to stand trial as they are applied today. He was extremely vulnerable to false confession, and you can even detect in his statements an eagerness to please investigators. Despite these obvious vulnerabilities, 
police continued to interrogate James multiple times to produce a confession that they would use to show his guilt in court. It turns out that James merely agreed with police about killing Helena Payton, but didn't know any other substantial details about the crime. He couldn't even say how she was killed. An initial appeal was made in 1989 to deem James's statement and confession inadmissible since they were, as the court documents state, not made knowingly or voluntarily, and they were made without Miranda warnings. The appeal also challenges the mental competency of James during his interrogations with police. The use of James's psychiatric history to manipulate him into confessing were very coercive, but the state denied any wrongdoing since they believed the statements weren't forced, in their opinion. In terms of competency, the state received two separate psychiatrist statements. The first psychiatrist agreed that James was psychotic during the interrogations, if not all of the time, which is corroborated by diagnoses that were made in the early 1980s of James of having atypical psychosis. Now, the second psychiatrist sung to a different tune. He had worked at the hospital where James was admitted before being interrogated by police. He did not believe that James had schizophrenia, but rather he believed James had mixed personality disorder with primitive, antisocial, and aggressive characteristics. He believed the prior diagnoses James had received were incorrect and asserted that James was merely a skilled malingerer. Now that goes against multiple diagnoses over a number of years. This psychiatrist also did not believe that James had a mental disorder at the time of his interrogation that would have made him incompetent, though he does admit that James was pretty limited mentally and easily influenced. Those limitations, in my opinion, specifically do put him in the incompetency category, so I, I don't really think that his assessment was fair. Now this psychiatrist claims were supported by some evidence in the record, and not surprisingly, the judge believed this assessment was, quote, better reasoned and more consistent with the behavior and history of the defendant than any opinion that he is psychotic. Now, honestly, at this point, it's pretty infuriating for me and probably any other psychologist to read that because judges are in no way trained in psychology or psychiatry. Just because someone makes a better argument or makes an argument consistent with your own beliefs and confirms your biases doesn't mean it's the better reasoned argument or more reflective of the quote-unquote truth. The fact that the psychiatrist could simultaneously label James as a skilled malingerer but also mentally limited doesn't make any sense. It presents this dichotomy that you wouldn't normally see in one person. It's unusual, and yet pretty well rationalized in this context. And I guess pretty convincing, since the judge sided with it. Admittedly, from both sides, there was conflicting evidence in the case file for James' competence, though it didn't turn out to be enough to grant that appeal. 
Fast forward a number of years, the Innocence Inquiry Commission determined there actually was enough evidence for James' innocence to deem a new hearing in 2018, which is almost 30 years after the initial appeal that was denied. Despite a preponderance of evidence that the confession was false, with no other physical evidence linking him to the crime, the district attorney still fought against James's exoneration, claiming the burden of proof was on him to prove his innocence, which is extremely difficult, leading to a lot of innocent people staying in jail. James was actually able to do so. He was able to prove himself innocent in this appeal, and a panel of three judges ruled him innocent, releasing him from prison last year. The police have no plan to reopen the case, meaning Helena's murderer will likely get away with the crime, as they have for the last 41 years, and we'll probably never find out who that is. This case brings up a lot of important issues that forensic psychologists handle and research, like false confessions and competency. There's still a lot of work to be done to correct past rulings in light of what we now know about these issues. For a more in-depth look at false confessions and competency, please listen to episodes 12 and 13, respectively. Thank you for listening to episode 27. I hope everyone is staying safe and well. If you want to support this podcast, please subscribe, download episodes, leave a review, and tell your friends. You can listen to the Forensic Files on the website at the-forensic-files.captivate.fm, which is linked in the episode notes. You can also listen anywhere you get podcasts. All episode content was researched, written, and produced by me, Dr. N. All music you hear in this episode was written and produced by me and classical composer Jeffrey Young.